stories about friendship can be some of the most compelling stories in our lives. Whether we are seeing or reading about the greatest friendships of all time held out in literature, for example, like the friendship of Woody and Buzz in Toy Story, or Dom and Brian O'Connor in The Fast and the Furious, or hearing a story about brotherhood between, let's say, Navy SEALs, soldiers being there for one another on the battlefield, or stories about friendship in the family. These stories, I think, all strike a chord with us as people who have been created in the image of God, designed for fellowship and friendship with one another, brotherhood and sisterhood. Today's passage becomes one of the most famous passages in Scripture about this friendship. And from it, we see the blessings of brotherhood. I'm not excluding sisters here. When I mean brother, when I refer to brotherhood, I include sisters here. Brotherhood in the Lord. That is the blessings of brotherhood in the Lord. That's the main idea if you're taking notes. The blessings of brotherhood in the Lord. Please join me in turning with 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you, it can be found on page 243, 243. Obviously, we are in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's all about God's people transitioning to being underneath an earthly king. And the book focuses on sort of the main characters, at least, would be Samuel. He's a prophet of God in a very ungodly time. And then the next main character is Saul, King Saul, Israel's first king. And then the next main character is King David. So you have Samuel, you then have Saul, and then you have King David. Now, where we are in the history is that God had rejected Saul as king. He, Saul basically had refused to have God over him. And so God provides for his people in a new king, that is David. And at this point in the story, David has already been anointed king. It's not public knowledge. But he has, in fact, been anointed as the next king, empowered by God to be the next king, as he is a man after God's own heart. Now, Saul, if you've been with us, we know that Saul does not like what God has determined, and he does everything in his power to keep the kingdom, no matter who stands in his way. That's like his idol. He wants the glory and the praise all to himself. He doesn't want God over him. Instead, he wants to be the only king over Israel. It's a a very sad and actually ironic situation. The man who is supposed to be king over God's people ends up fighting against the Lord and the Lord's next chosen one, that is David. In chapters 18 and 19, which we looked at last week, Saul makes numerous attempts to murder David. But thank God, every one of Saul's efforts end up failing. Of course they do. Keep, Keep in mind, right? He is fighting against the Lord. If last week's chapters, chapters 18 and 19, presents and then condemns Saul's hostility against God and his anointed, this week's passage in chapter 20 presents to us and encourages the exact opposite. It presents and encourages steadfast love to God's anointed. Steadfast love to God's anointed. Our passage presents and encourages the blessings of brotherhood in the Lord, in three particular ways, if you're taking notes. Number one, first, security amidst insecurity. Number two, faithful friends in times of need. Faithful friends in times of need. And then number three, peace amidst future uncertainty. Peace amidst future uncertainty. Now, of course, we could come up, if we were to survey all of the Bible, we could come up with a whole lot of different blessings of brotherhood, sisterhood, and Jesus Christ. Uh, But our passage here focuses, I think, on these three, and that's what we look at. Let's look first at security amidst insecurity and instability. This is in verses 1 to 17, verses 1 to 17. Now, remember, okay, David is on the run. He's having to flee. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anyone after you. I know some of you guys have. I don't know if you've ever had anyone after you, whether it be creditors or even law enforcement or whoever. I have, just to be clear, it was not my fault. It wasn't my fault, right? Uh, when I was around 20 years old, someone had uh, stolen my identity. I was living in uh, Westwood. And someone had stolen my identity back when identity 
theft was not as common as it is today. Um, and it's not, wasn't as known. So I think more people were freaking out. I was one of them. And this guy, this person, who I think was actually my roommate, this person had opened up multiple credit cards and spent over $10,000 in my name. And eventually creditors came after me. They were calling me, even leaving notes on my parents' door. I don't know if you remember that, Dad. But they were leaving notes on my parents' doorstep. They were investigating. They were accusing. They were threatening, they were threatening me with all of the repercussions of supposedly taking off with $10,000 plus of their money. Now, for a moment there, for that little moment, I thought I was actually liable. Eventually, I figured out that regardless of whatever they were accusing me of, I was not liable because I didn't do it. But until I figured that out, I was freaking out. I I was insecure. I was nervous. There was a lot of uncertainty. You know, I thought, like, am I going to be stuck with that bill? How in the world am I going to pay back $10,000 plus? How is that going to affect my credit and then my future? I mean, to some degree, I was looking at my life situation and was unsure and insecure. Maybe you guys are doing that. You're looking at life and you feel insecure for whatever reason. Well, this is David times a million. This is David times a million. David didn't just have like mere creditors after him. The king of the whole entire land is after him. And even though he's supposed to rule under God, you know, Saul does whatever he wants to. So we know he's he's going after David. And then on top of that, imagine having to flee, like right now. Imagine having to flee your loved ones. We know that he had to leave his wife in the middle of the night. Michael, we saw last time, let him out through the window because Saul's servants were after him. David is cut off from his wife. David is cut off from all of his earthly possessions. He's cut off from the safety that all of that provides. He's cut off from his soldiers that he led and his friends even and all of his supporters. And in the face of all of that insecurity and instability, I'm not talking about psychological insecurity here, in the face of this insecurity, not knowing what's going to happen, there is one friend who has his back. That's Jonathan. Interestingly enough, this is Jonathan that is Saul's very own son, the crown prince. The crown prince has David's back. In chapter 18, if you go ahead and look there, Jonathan, Saul's very own son, sees that David too is a man of faith. And that David has the kingly qualities to lead the people of God. He is a man worth following, worth pledging his allegiances to and pledging his very own self. Now that is a contrast to Saul's hatred, his anger, his hostility. And in 18, 1 to 15, Jonathan makes a covenant with David as a brother in the Lord and gives himself his honor, his faithfulness and love, his respect to this soon-to-be king. Through this brotherhood, the Lord provides David with some sense of strength and security. Look there at chapter 20, verse 1. As David tries to stay alive and to figure out what in the world is going on, look there. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. What's really fascinating here, in relation to this contrast between Saul's hostility and then Jonathan's love, you see here already a little bit of what's being highlighted here. It is Jonathan's absolute innocence. His absolute innocence in this matter of wanting David dead. His father might want him dead, but Jonathan is in the free and clear. And it's presented through the dialogue, actually. Jonathan initially is surprised at the thought that Saul, his father, would try and murder David because he thinks that Saul actually uh, shares with him everything as a confidant, right? Saul has brought Jonathan into his cabinet, so to speak. But here it turns out that Saul has been excluding him. And you look there at verse 3. Look how this unfolds, right? And David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. 
Saul here has definitely kept him out of the loop. Saul knows the allegiances of his very own son are actually, not to him, but to David when it comes to his kingdom and his line. So Jonathan responds there, whatever, I, whatever you say, I will do for you. In verses 5 to 7, David comes up with his plan to bring out Saul's true intentions. And this plan, if you go ahead and look there, this plan hinges on the expectation that David, as usual, is going to sit down for a meal with Saul and Jonathan and then another man named Abner who, who uh, comes into the picture a little bit more later. And he's going to do this on the occasion of the new moon or, or the beginning of the new month. And the plan is, right, if Saul asks for me, David's telling Jonathan, look, if Saul asks for me, tell him I went to Bethlehem to make sacrifices for the new moon, which, which were required according to the law. If Saul says, good, great, I'm glad he's gone, then everything is okay. And then, you know, David could go back. But if Saul gets ticked off, then we know he really wants to kill me and he will persist and nothing is going to stop him. If David is not there yet again, David would have evaded Saul again, right? And Saul would have been really angry. That's why we know, right? If he's so angry that he is now taken off, there's no opportunity to kill him. So that's what's going on here. And then you look over there at 8 to 10. David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, he says, Look, if, there, if I have really done anything wrong against the king of the people of God, if there is any guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me back to your father, right? He'd rather die at the hands of a righteous man than Saul, an evil man. And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Before we move on to how the story unfolds, we already see that there is security in this brotherhood. For one, David can count on Jonathan to have his back here. When David says there in verse 8, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant of the Lord. David is asking him to deal rightly with me. Deal rightly with me. Deal with me with the very integrity and honesty of the Lord. That's what he's saying there. Do the right thing according to the Lord, just as I have dealt with you. He says, if there is guilt in me, he says, look, if, I, if I've dealt wrongly with you, then rightly so, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to count on me. But he says, just as I have dealt with you, if there's any guilt in me, because David has not sinned against Saul, right? He is free from guilt. He's innocent. And so here, this, this passage beautifully highlights this innocence of Jonathan and Jonathan's commitment. One thing that is awesome in this narrative is that amidst, amidst the Philistines' hostility to David, amidst Saul, the king of Israel's hostility towards David, there is one man that comes to David's rescue. And the two of them together are the godly among the godless. And you, we get the opportunity to see all of their godliness and their righteousness, just as David has no hostility towards Saul and is innocent, so Jonathan is innocent as well towards David. That's security right there. The world may be out for me, but with my brother in the Lord, there is righteousness. There is brotherly love. And then this theme develops. Verse 10, David says, who will tell me the intentions of your father? And being a further display of Jonathan's faithfulness to David, look there at verse 12, and you see what Jonathan pledges to David. He says there, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? He says, or shall I disclose it to you? He, he's saying, I'm going to let you know. But should it please my father to do your harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. You, you hear what he's saying? If there are evil intentions, I'm going to tell you. He's, and more so, he says, look, if Saul wants to kill you, let Saul do that to me according to the covenant that I have made. I will die before I betray my loyalty and faithfulness and righteous dealings towards you. 
It's a beautiful language there. The Lord do so to Jonathan if I do not disclose it. This is all actually covenant language. This is all covenant language. You see that in verse 14? You look there, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. So you got that covenant language like, you know, a covenant is a commitment made. And if one breaks the covenant, then the penalty is blood. Yes, that's, that's, that's that language right there talking about if I am still alive, Saul will do that. Let Saul do that more to me. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Fulfill your end of the covenant. This is all covenant love and such faithfulness. Such steadfast love is actually an echo of God's steadfast love. It is an echo of God's steadfast love. It is a love that stems from the heart of God. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. So, you know, to to merely take this as, you know, five lessons for human friendship, you know, while that may be helpful to some degree, ultimately, this is not ultimately about human friendship. It's about the love of God, God's steadfast love being worked out here between these two brothers, brothers in the Lord. Both David and Jonathan ask each other to deal with the other in steadfast love. The Hebrew word here is chesed. David says it in verse 8 when he says deal kindly. That's that word there, chesed. Deal kindly with me or deal with me in steadfast love. It's the same Hebrew word that Jonathan uses here in verse 14 for steadfast love. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, every Hebrew familiar with the scriptures would have understand this love. They would have understood this love. Because they knew that God is a God of steadfast love. That is, all that he promises, he undoubtedly fulfills. The steadfast love of the Lord is God's covenant-keeping love. The steadfast love of the Lord is God's covenant-keeping keeping love this term is so crucial to understanding god and therefore his people in exodus chapter 34 moses asked god to reveal himself to him as kind of evidence that god would be with him in the exodus leading all of his people that he would go before him and that he would rule over them in safety and bring them to safety now what does god reveal to moses to encourage him This is what God says in Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed. Right? Moses is asking God himself, Yahweh, to show himself. And what does the Lord say? He passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, in the face of insecurity, Moses finds security in God and the fact that all that he has promised, God will actually deliver. When it comes to this account, this is not certainly a lesson again of regular human friendship. This is a small example, small example about how the Lord's people love each other, having been loved already by God himself. This is how the Lord's people love each other, having already been loved by God himself, and they are to love like God. As these brothers in arms love each other, so they reflect the Lord of love to one another. And what's interesting is that every human being who's ever cast their eyes or heard the story from 1 Samuel, Jonathan and David's love for one another, they too get to see and observe a little bit of God's steadfast covenant-keeping love worked out between two of the Lord's people. Now, friend, if you appreciate something here about what it looks like to keep one's promises, whether here or even amongst one another here, if you know anything like that, friends, you know that that's just a reflection, a little tiny reflection of God's covenant-keeping love. Now, you might be visiting with us and are exploring Christianity. This is the thing here to really look at. It is God's covenant-keeping love in Jesus. God's steadfast love is seen most clearly in promising the Messiah who would deliver his people from their sins and in sending him 
to save his people. He promises, think Old Testament. He fulfills, think New Testament, the arrival of Jesus. This is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 22 that the new covenant is in his blood. It is a covenant according to his blood. Even where we fail to keep the covenant, God himself fulfills both ends of the covenant. All according to his grace and mercy given in Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, we see God's covenant love in the flesh in Christ's life. In Christ's sacrificial death on the cross as he bears the wrath that his people deserve for sinning against the creator. We see God's covenant keeping love in raising Jesus from the dead three days later. And then we see his covenant keeping love in Christ issuing the command that all who turn to me will in fact be saved, forgiven of their sins. They repent of their sins and believe. Jesus says you will be forgiven. For a wayward people, God in his covenant love actually reaches out and he provides a way back to the creator, your creator, through Jesus Christ. That's what we see here. We see friendship, but really we see a little echo of God's covenant-keeping love in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you want to know more about this love and enter into this love, that everything promised will actually be fulfilled according to God's will, let me encourage you, friends, repent of your sins and believe. He has promised that you will know union with him, forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, access to grace into eternity, even right now, beginning right now, if you would turn from your sins and believe on him friends you will be saved he promises that and he fulfills that in jesus christians did you notice that david and jonathan have covenant obligations did you notice that david and jonathan have covenant obligations speaking generally they are to act in a certain way right they are to act in a certain way according to the covenant according to steadfast love but they are to do that as brothers in the lord Well, we today who are in Jesus Christ are also obligated to act in a certain way towards our fellow Christians, specifically fellow church members. And these are summarized in our church covenant, actually. Go ahead and look in your bulletin there. You'll see the church covenant. That's why we put that in there. Our church covenant is just a summary of all the different ways in which Christ calls us to live and love as his people in the world. Christ Jesus is our head, and then he, of course, is the head of the church. And then the church, that is his body, you know, makes its way around the world, and people are going to look at us, and who do they see? They see Christ in us. We reflect our head. This is just a summary here of how Christ desires us to live here, a wonderful, useful summary in the church covenant here. And being united to Christ, so we have one heart, With Jesus, we are of one spirit. We have the very spirit of God living inside of us. We are also united to one another in Jesus Christ. So we are united with Christ, but then we're also united to one another in Jesus Christ. You see the connection between love and then the love of God and then loving one another. We know the love of God in Jesus, and so we are to show the love of God in Jesus, right? So now that we know We are to show. Now that we know, we are to show. It goes from the vertical to the horizontal. This is why Jesus is so determined. Let's say in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus is so determined that people know, hey, if you love me at all, you will love my people, right? If you love me, you will obey my commands. He says, if you have fellowship with me, you ought to love the brothers. That's why we read the passage in 1 John, right? If you say you love God, that's what 1 John says, if you say you love God but don't love one another, like, I don't, think, I don't think we ought to take any confidence in our knowledge of the love of God, supposedly. That's what our church covenant is all about, right? Now that we know, how exactly do we show we are really Christians? How do we show so that people would be secure in the love of Jesus Christ amidst all of life's insecurities and uncertainties? How do we show to the watching world so that they would know, too, that in this hostile world, All men can know this solace in the love and righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That's what what this church covenant points us to. But friends, I hope you see when you look at this church covenant, right, that you all have undertaken being members of the same church, I hope you not only see this as like, okay, well, how exactly do we do these things, these obligations? I hope you also see them as opportunities. 
it's not just now that we know how do we show. You could think of it this way. It's like now that we know how can we show. See, it goes not ever merely from obligation, but also towards opportunity. These are covenant promises, not only obligations, but opportunities. Opportunities that you, church member, have to help secure your fellow members in the love of Jesus Christ. And we all together, you know, every single one of us are in some ways facing these difficult circumstances where we might feel desperate, confused, just like David. Friends, you realize that these are opportunities to deal with others rightly. And we're talking about not just integrity, but the integrity of God. Not just worldly righteousness, but the righteousness of God. We have those types of opportunities to deal with one another in the very ways of God. So, for example, if you know someone struggling with sin, we have the opportunity to, quote, according to the church covenant here, exercise Christian care and watchfulness in pursuing them. And as best we can, right, we have the opportunity to evidence our good shepherd's love for them because we know that God has already pursued us in Jesus. If we know someone rejoicing or someone bearing a particularly big burden, right, according to our church covenant, according to the Bible, we have the opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice. But we also have the opportunity to bear with each other's burdens and sorrows, according to the Bible, according to our church covenant. When we do this, we remind our fellow church members that we serve a Christ who so desires to link arms with us and to bear that burden for us. We could just do this. We could do this all day. Just look at every single phrase of the church covenant and show what aspects of God's love do we get to that we have the opportunity to remind our fellow church members that they would be secure in the love of God. God forbid that these promises of the covenant are dry obligations simply to be done with no heart when really they are godly obligations and crucial opportunities to see others safe and secure in the love of Jesus Christ manifested in God's people. Let me encourage you, if you're going to spend time, let's say, if you're going to meet up with another Christian um, throughout the week, as I know that many of you guys do, let me encourage you to uh, grab this church covenant. And if you know that they are in need of lifting up, if they need encouragement, spiritual encouragement, let me just encourage you to actually look at this before you meet up with that person and figure out like, okay, how can I help this other person do these particular things in their time of need? How encouraging would that be? Even if you come up to the meeting or even after the meeting, say, hey, brother, you know, I pray, you know, I don't do this perfectly. We are all still sinners. We don't do this perfectly. Only Jesus is the one. But we, I'm going to try and do this for you in this particular way. These are the ways in which I've been praying for you according to our church covenant, according to the word of God. I think that'd be super encouraging to let people know that ultimately we're going to seek to love one another according to the words of God and see to it that others are loved in the same way that Christ wants them loved. Um, also, is used another practical application. If someone, let's say if you're a graphic designer, I only know of one graphic designer, so if you are a graphic designer in this church, uh, let me encourage you, even if you're not, you can come up with a ghetto design or a bookmark. You just put the whole thing like on a bookmark front and back. We can laminate it, stick it in our Bibles. So that way, when we're opening our Bibles or we're going to meetings with people and we have our Bibles right there, we can actually see, pull it out and say, how can I help this person according to the church covenant? Just a summary of biblical commands. Let me encourage somebody to do that. <laughs> so that's the first blessing there, security. The first blessing is security. The second blessing of brotherhood in the Lord is faithfulness. Faithful brothers, even in persecution. Faithful brothers, even in persecution. Jonathan's faithfulness is a huge blessing to David. In verses 18 to 24, Jonathan devises this plan on how he would alert David about whether Saul continues on his rampage or not. You can go ahead and skim those. He basically says, look, okay, you go hide out in this field and wait. And this is how you'll know whether it's okay to come back or whether you should get out of town. He says, I'll come back to this field. And since no one should know that we are in contact or that we've talked... I'm going to shoot arrows to communicate. Uh, and, and basically, I'm going to shoot arrows towards your direction. And if, you, if it's okay to come back, I'm going to tell my helper, my little boy who, who uh, goes out and retrieves my arrows, my servant. He says, I'm going to tell my servant, hey, hey, the arrows are on this side. 
They're on this side, and you'll know it's okay to come back. And that's there in verse 21. But if I shoot arrows, and I have to tell my helper there in verse 22, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go. Then go. Verse 22, for the Lord has sent you away. Let's see how this unfolds. Look there in verse, verses 24 to 29. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. And, and there the issue is, you know, if you did something clean, unclean, sorry, let's say like you touched a, a corpse or something like that or did something else that was unclean according to the law of God, you had to take some time to purify oneself or cleanse oneself, which, which is why maybe he's thinking, okay, he's just not present. Look there in verse 27. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You see what happens there. Saul actually turns on Jonathan, his very own son. His anger, he's so... He's so enraged about this, the preservation of his own kingdom, which God is not going to give him, that he even tries to put Jonathan to death. He looked there at verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. That's why he's so upset with Jonathan there. You see him, he's calling him a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. He's basically saying that you'll have the same stuff. He's not really insulting the mother, he's insulting Jonathan himself. You see what he bears there. You see all the risk there of his faithfulness. His faithfulness despite the risks. He bears the reproach for David. Not only that though, but he almost loses his life. And what's amazing is that in this narrative here, there's not a shred of evidence that says that Jonathan actually regretted this decision. He only there in verse 34 loses respect for his father. David has a faithful friend in Jonathan. And here he suffers so that David would be safe. As we seek to apply this passage to our day and age, it's important to note that in Jonathan here, Again, we have an example, a model of faithful, brotherly love in the Lord. In the New Testament, too, we have also faithful models of what it looks like to live for the Lord, brothers in the Lord. We have it in the, Paul the Apostle who suffers for the sake of the gospel and for the sake that others would grow in the gospel. He freely, he, 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 freely, he willingly bears the reproach and violence even with joy, all for the Lord. We see this time and time and time again. First Thessalonians chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and read that later on, you see that being so evident. He suffers so that others would experience joy in the Lord. Their faith, that is other Christians' faith, their growth in Jesus Christ is worth Paul's sufferings because it is that for which he chooses to suffer. David's life is worth Jonathan's sufferings because it is that for which he chooses to suffer. You know, we can always tell what we value based on what we are willing to suffer for. You can tell what you value based on what you're willing to suffer for. And the degree to which you're willing to inconvenience yourself for that thing, you can see so obviously how much you value that thing. For Paul, he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for people to grow in the gospel. But friends, I wonder... If the security of other Christians in Christ 
here in this church or here in your church if you're visiting and know yourself to be a Christian, is that something worth suffering for and inconveniencing yourself for? Or do you kind of treat church as if it's all about you? You know, you think, hey, okay, maybe I'll stay at this church if other people are willing to inconvenience themselves for me in the ways that I actually feel like I can be loved. You know, I was listening to this podcast, and uh, Nine Mark's podcast, and Mark Dever, he, I think Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman were talking about how uh, Dever made this sort of offhand comment that if we define love or if we only receive love in ways in which we feel is love, he said that was satanic. And initially, that kind of caught me off guard. To call something satanic, I, I feel like I, I, or if I were to say I need to be loved in this particular ways and I'm defining these particular ways, how is that satanic? That's satanic because all of a sudden, if you just don't find God to be loving or Christ and the gospel to be loving, then you just sort of just shove that all aside and say, no, no, I can only be loved. This is really, truly love. And everything else that I don't define as love is really not love. That, friends, is so far from the Bible. You know, First John again, we turn there. This is how we know love. God gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is love. And loving because of that love and even out of that love is love. I hope we are not thinking primarily, how can, I, how can other people meet my needs, but how can I be faithful to meet other people's needs and to care for them in Jesus? Friends, if you're not willing to inconvenience yourself for that something, it might just go to show that you might not value that thing too much after all. In relation to examples, I think a couple here in this church that encourages me in their faithfulness to love the congregation is David and Jennifer Ng. Uh, They inconvenience themselves by choosing to love the congregation. Now, when I say inconvenience, I have never once heard them say, man, the church is such an inconvenience. I don't mean inconvenience like that. That's not what I mean. When I say inconvenience themselves, I'm just saying that it is very clear that they make sacrifices for other people when they don't have to. That genuinely is an inconvenience in some ways, in some sense of the definition there. In effort to exercise hospitality and have people over to their home, right? That's a sacrifice of personal resources. Think time resources, personal and then also family. That's also a sacrifice of energy resources, right? You got to expend yourself, right? Think also, it's a sacrifice of financial resources. You've got to pay money to invite people over to your home to have fellowship over a meal. And when they have had someone live in their home, which they have had in the past, you think, too, that that's also a sacrifice of material resources because you've got wear and tear on your very own house, right? It's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. There are costs associated with loving, very practical costs that come out of their wallets. They don't have to do any of it, but yet they choose to do it so that others can grow in their Christ-likeness. Think more about what else is sacrificed in David, right, or in David's life, right? He doesn't have to show up early on Sunday mornings to equip. doesn't have to at all. He could stay home with his family and have a nice brunch and then get to church at 10.30 a.m. Not that that in and of itself is bad if you actually did that this morning. He doesn't have to lead the mission trip curriculum meeting after church today and for the next three weeks and for the past two weeks. He could do whatever he wanted over his summer break, which teachers, you know, really appreciate. He doesn't have to choose to give up one week of his life to go to East Asia and to help lead the team there, leaving his wife and his five children at home. One of them is a newborn. And Jen doesn't have to give up. She doesn't have to choose to give up her husband for that period of time. But yet they choose to do those things for the sake of the gospel and so that other people would grow in Christ. And all those decisions, don't they evidence what they value? That's why David is an elder. He's a faithful brother that I am so glad to serve alongside with. A faithful brother that I am happy to commend to you all. As a godly man, not perfect, like all of us, but by God's grace, worthy, absolutely worthy of commending. Of course, our perfect model is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior the very one whose spirit is in David and in Paul. He loved and was faithful to the death. Jesus loved and was faithful to the death. 
in order that we, sinners, though we had rebelled against him and earned just judgment for ourselves, would be safe and secure in him and in his covenant love for us. And knowing this love, so we love like him. So we are able to love like him. Because of his faithfulness, we are able by his grace to strive to love one another in his faithfulness. What are the blessings of brotherhood in the Lord? First, security. Second, faithful friends in difficult times. And third, last point here, peace. Peace in chaos. Uh, Let's go ahead and actually just read the rest of the account there. 35 to 42. And we see what happens here. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's focus there again on 41 and 42. This is such a, a moving account here. I remember saying goodbye to my brother when he was moving out of state. Me and him were inseparable growing up. And then when I was struggling big time spiritually in my teens and then also in my 20s, God used him big time in my life to draw me out of this backslidden, difficult time spiritually. And then after that, we went on to go and serve <clears throat> a number of years together helping to lead the same fellowship group of college students. And then when he moved away, it was incredibly hard. I knew that our relationship would forever change. I knew that we would go from seeing each other, let's say, you know, a few times a week and into the early morning hours of uh, the days, hanging out all the time, to maybe seeing each other once, twice a year, if that. But while while parting with my brother was difficult, that was nothing compared to David and Jonathan. Me and my brother, right, we were parting to go on to live our relatively nice lives. You know, me here in Southern California, my brother going off to Dallas, Texas, where he would attend seminary. No doubt, right, it was sad. You know, I remember crying with my brother in front of other people. It was like, it was the first time me and my brother had cried together in who knows how long since we were children. But nevertheless, right, this is a relatively easy parting. David, think about his parting with Jonathan. David flees to escape the king, right, He's, going, he's escaping the king and is heading into uncertainty. He has no idea when Saul and his servants are going to catch up with him. How long, right, will I be on the run as I have to get out of town? And then think about Jonathan, right? He has to leave this field and then has to return to Saul's house. Will David's fate become my own? This is really fascinating here. You know, you, you get this idea of this field. And there's hostilities all around. You've got the Philistines all around. You've got Israel all around too and the king and his servants pursuing him. And then here in this little field, in this one little moment in their place, they have covenant friendship. And they have to actually depart from this field going their separate ways into the hostility. Thank God for this peace that they have, knowing full well what could happen in either circumstances. Look at verse 41. It's a moving section, right? They... They see each other, they weep, they kiss, they bow. There's no time for machismo. In fact, there's no need for such machismo for those who are the bravest in the kingdom already. And then he gives, they give each other these parting kisses. It reminds me of Cecil, who in many ways, Cecil used to attend church here when the church was like, you know, 10, 20 people. It reminds me of Cecil, who was a bit of a grandfather figure in this church a while back. And every single sunny Sunday, without fail, when he would come to say hello, and then when, we would, when he would leave and depart, he would always leave, lean in, right? And we would touch kisses. We'd touch 
uh, cheeks and then give each other the kiss. You know, we make that kissing noise. Of course, there's nothing weird about that because in some ways, right, we shared something here underneath this roof for this church. And that is what David and Jonathan have to do here. They know that this uncertainty, this danger, this chaos lies ahead of them. But yet, this is what makes Jonathan's goodbye all the more strange. Look there in 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. How was Jonathan able to say, go in peace, despite all of the hostility that surrounds them? Well, it's because of the covenant, isn't it? Go in peace. Why? Well, it says there, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. It's because in the brotherhood of the Lord, there is security. There, faithfulness is present, that they would deal rightly and righteously with one another when all the world around them is trying to murder them. This has implications on actually their family lines, right, as they work to keep the covenant love with one another. You see, talking about this offspring, this language of offspring, it comes up later on in 2 Samuel. There, Jonathan and Saul had both died in battle. Jonathan was faithful to David. Interestingly enough, he still manages to honor, honor uh, Saul, even though his ultimate allegiance, <clears throat> his spiritual allegiance, so to speak, was to David, the Lord's anointed. Anyways, after Jonathan dies, <clears throat> fighting valiantly in battle, we see David keeping this covenant promise and providing for Jonathan's offspring, bringing this, Jonathan's offspring into his very own family, as Jonathan basically did with David. Amidst this chaos, David and Jonathan have a lasting peace because of the covenant made between friends, brothers, in the Lord. But again, this account isn't just about human friendship. What is, in fact, being echoed and displayed is the very steadfast love of the Lord. David and Jonathan can part in peace and have peace in the midst of chaos because it is the Lord who is over them and the Lord who is with them. This is why David says to Jonathan in verse 8, you have brought me into a covenant of the Lord. This is why Jonathan asks of David there in verse 14, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's why we know that just as they swore in the name of the Lord, so the Lord would be between them. Of course, David knows that the greatest peace comes from the Lord. Turn over to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. While clearly appreciating his brother Jonathan, who is it that David relies on for deliverance and salvation for this moment and all of his life? It is God. Not to downplay this awesome relationship, this friendship, this brotherhood of Jonathan and David, but Jonathan doesn't show up at all in Psalm 59. And you see that it is really about the events of of 1 Samuel chapter 19 and 20, you look at the inspired inscription. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, we assume that that's a tune, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. If you just skim the psalm there, you'll see who he relies on for deliverance. As encouraging as this friendship is between Jonathan and David, this psalm is all about God working His salvation for His people. Right? Despite all of the persecution, Saul sending, out, sending guys to try and kill him, hurling spears, trying to get the Philistines to kill him. What does David say in verses 9 and 10? Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, oh God, are my fortress. May my God in His steadfast love will meet me. You look over to 14 and 17. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. He's talking about their, His own blood. Look at verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress 
and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who, has, who shows me steadfast love. David depends on God for his ultimate peace because God is the king. You see so much of David's heart right there. The king of Israel might want to kill me, but he lives for the true one and only king. And you look there at verses 12 and 13. You see what he's aiming for here. For the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For, for the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. God is king, and he wants everybody else to know it. Friends, for all of God's people, only God can be our final peace. Friendship and brotherhood in the Lord, even in this church, is awesome. It's by God's design. It's supposed to be encouraging. We can still uplift that where we succeed by God's grace. You can also think of one's covenant between, let's say, a believing spouse, right? Marriage in the Lord. That's wonderful. Children in the Lord, brothers in the Lord. That, those things are genuine, wonderful gifts. It's evidence of the love of God himself. But if you try and put anyone else's name in this psalm, you got nothing. You got nothing. You can look there. Verse 9, oh, my strength, I will watch for you, for you, oh, husband, are my fortress. My husband, in your steadfast love, yes, you will meet me. And what is he going to do? He's going to go and struggle with lust. He's going to go and think about his own comfort and not yours. He's going to go and think about what you need to be doing for him instead of what he can do for you at times in his sin. You've got nothing if you put your husband in there. You put your wife in there, you do the same thing. You put brothers in the Lord in there, nothing, ultimately. It doesn't work. Now, friends, I say that as one who absolutely, by God's grace, loves my wife, loves my children, and loves the church. And I say this not to discount any of your love for me or your love for one another. I just know that the Bible says no one can love as perfectly as God does. It is that simple. And where my family loves well, where the church loves well, it is just a little light ray that comes from the blazing love of God. Now, to some who might be primarily concerned with having our needs met, this actually works as a corrective. This actually works as a corrective. I mean, maybe you long for the peace of having a Christian marriage, the peace of having good Christian friends or a good Christian church and a good Christian community. But if you aren't first delighting in the peace of God won for you and pledged for you in God's steadfast love in Jesus, I'm not sure what you want in a marriage that is Christian, a church that is Christian, friends who are Christian. That's like delighting in heat while not caring about the sun. That's like loving the benefits of a thing apart from the thing itself. Friends, there's danger in that, right? One day you wake up and you might not particularly feel the heat from others. And so you're just going to conclude that the sun is already burned out when that's not the case. Or you might not particularly feel the heat of Christian love while you don't care about the sun. Then all you're going to do is try and get those benefits from something else. But friends, all those things just are so temporary here in this world. Here's a wonderful thing, though. God is unchangeable in his character. He is steadfast in his love, as Exodus says, to thousands of generations. And if we know that, if we know that, even if we don't particularly feel the heat of Christian love, or if we ourselves fail to love like Jesus Christ, we still end up pointing people to the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Even where I might not feel it from you, and even though I might not give it to you at particular times, we still can point people to the love of God in Jesus, right? When others don't love us, 
as well as Jesus loves us, well, at that moment there, we can grow in our understanding of people's situations. We can forgive just as we've been forgiven in Christ and go on loving. And when we don't love others as well as Jesus wants us, wants them loved, well, then we can ask for understanding and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and go on loving. And what happens in both of those situations? What happens when we as Christians seek to understand and be reconciled to one another? Who gets the praise as Christians? Christ gets the praise. The love of God in Christ is what is glorified, glorified and spotlighted in our relationships, whether we succeed or whether we fail in the moment because of sin. It's not ultimately our human efforts to fulfill this covenant. But where covenant love comes from in the first place, that's what's glorified and spotlighted. All that God has done to fulfill the covenant in Jesus Christ as sinners, that's what's highlighted and spotlighted. Where there are successes, and there are successes in this church, I know of them, you tell me them, you experience them, praise God. We acknowledge God's grace in Christ working in us, making us more like Jesus. And where there are failures, there are failures, you know them, you do them, you commit them, you experience them. We plead God's grace in Jesus Christ, that Christ would unite us for his namesake. And friends, in those in those, going, in those times when we go back and forth in friendship, in life, where we actually are encouraging one another in the Lord and where we might sin with, against one another in the Lord because we're not perfect, we're not Jesus. Amidst those things, Christ is glorified. And imagine that kind of love that God wants us loving others with. The world then will know, our neighbors will know that something is different. And amidst everything, we help each other find peace in God as the family of God, all for the glory of God. Having been loved by Christ, we then love like Christ. We can ask, how can we love like Christ? To conclude, being bonded by the blood of Christ, we are, in fact, God's covenant community. That is the church. And God willing, with Christ before us and Christ with us, Christ in us, we as church members who seek to live out our own church covenant, we can point people to the security that is found in Jesus Christ. We point people to the faithfulness that is exemplified in Jesus Christ and the peace that is granted in Christ so that no matter how difficult situations may be or how much weight we might feel because of indwelling sin that still lasts, we always have hope and confidence in turning to Him and loving like Him, because we are in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give You, we give our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all the praise. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our peace, that you came preaching peace. And through your very own shed blood and your resurrection, we know peace and are granted peace. Father, how awesome is it that your church is to be this place, this covenant community where Christ-like love can be given and received over and over and over again, even in the midst of our own sin and are sinning against one another. Lord, we know that on the outside, there is a hostile world. We thank you, Lord, that here on the inside, we know the peace and security and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that just as all mankind knows that we live in a hostile world, Lord, we pray that the church would just go on and be the church, that you, by your spirit, would help us live and love one another so that all would know that we are your disciples. We pray, Lord, that many people here in this community and the people that we work with and interact with and on a day-to-day -day basis, Lord, that they, we pray, Lord, that they would know through our example that security can be had, first and foremost, between God and them in Jesus Christ. And that you so pacify people's hostility all by your grace. 
And Lord, we pray too that in our love for one another, Lord, that this church would be a wonderful display of your glory to the watching world. Strengthen our bonds of love for one another, we pray. We pray, God, that we would know our very own hearts and so see that we cannot love perfectly. And so all the more that would make us so desperate to fall at the feet of Jesus, pleading that you help us love more like yourself, pleading that other people would love like you as well. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow up into maturity so that we would rightly so reflect the head that is Jesus Christ. We pray these things for First Baptist's sake and the sake and all the different churches here in Southern California and in the world that are uh, even this very day preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the peace of Jesus Christ. We pray these things for your name and for your glory. Amen.